welcome all of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are here at Central Campus, along with those of you meeting together at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also in Northwest Calgary. While we're beginning, um, we're continuing our series actually in the book of 1 John, and if you've been tracking with us in this study, you may recall that John wrote this letter in response to false teaching that was infiltrating the church about what it meant to be a Christian. Uh, this resulted in many of the early believers being confused about their faith. Now, when I think of being confused, I'm reminded of two fellows who were working for the city of Edmonton, um, preparing for the Grey Cup weekend. Um, one would dig a hole and the other would follow behind him and fill the hole in. And they worked furiously all day like this without resting. And finally, a person who had been watching this for some time uh, couldn't stand any longer and approached them and, and he said to the two fellows, um, pardon me gentlemen, but I'm confused. Um, I, I've been watching you for several hours from my office window and I mean, you dig a hole and then your partner follows behind you and fills it up again. Like, what's with that? And the hole digger wiped his brow and he said, well, you see, normally we're a three-man crew, but the guy who plants trees is sick today. <laughs> well, that about clears that up. Anyway, seriously, <clears throat> enjoy the great cup. But anyways, uh, because of false teaching infiltrating the early church, some of the believers became confused about what it meant to be a Christian, and some even questioned whether, in fact, they were Christians. Well, John wrote this letter not only to confront falsehoods that were being taught, but also to clarify what it means to be an authentic follower of Christ. In the first four verses of this letter, the apostle um, John essentially says the, the first thing that you have to settle is what you believe about Jesus. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is God, that he came to earth as a man, fully human, during which time he chose not to exercise his divine power, but to live in total dependence on his heavenly Father. The profound truths that he taught, the amazing miracles that he performed, were all accomplished by his Father working through him. Jesus was ultimately arrested, tried, and crucified for crimes that he didn't commit. He died on a cross to atone for our sins, was buried and then rose again on the third day, and according to 1 Corinthians 15, appearing not only to his disciples, but also to more than 500 of the believers at the same time. If we put our trust in him, he will invade our lives and not only transform us, uh, into the person that God made us to be, but will be our advocate with His Heavenly Father, making it possible for us to have eternal life. What we believe about Christ and what He did for us is absolutely foundational, which is why John starts out his letter pointing us first and foremost to Christ. And then secondly, John goes on in verses 5 to 7 to say that true Christians walk in the light of God rather than in darkness. 
When we put our faith in Christ and surrender our lives to his lordship, we die to the power and the control of the old sin nature. And we become a new creation in Christ who is now our Lord and our master. And we increasingly walk in his way and say no to the power of sin and darkness in our lives. And then thirdly, from verse 8 right through to the first couple of verses in chapter 2, John says true Christians confess their sins. They don't deny that they're sinners. They don't try to justify their sin or rationalize away their sin, but they rather humbly confess their sins to God. Totally confident that God will forgive their sins and purify them from all unrighteousness because Jesus Christ died to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Which brings us now to chapter 2, verse 3, where John gets even more specific about what it means to be an authentic Christian. So I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading our scripture lesson for today. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you again for inspiring John to write these words. Our hearts are open to you, Lord. We ask that you would communicate the truth that you want us to understand today, that we would have focused minds, we would have open uh, hearts, and we would receive what you have for us. And you would give us the courage, the will, to step out and do what you're calling us to do. For we pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned just a moment ago, in the passage we just read together, John drills down even deeper about what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ. He writes, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. So what commands is he referring to? Well, this is not referring to the Old Testament law of Moses. You see, the Old Testament, including the law of Moses, must always be interpreted in light of the New Testament or the New Covenant in Christ. Now, to be clear, we know that the moral precepts and commands that Christ taught were consistent with the moral and spiritual law of Moses. However, the ceremonial laws, the sacrifices, the rituals, the offerings, the food restrictions, the special days, including the Sabbath, were all fulfilled in Christ and no longer applicable in the New Testament or the New Covenant era. The commands that the Apostle John's referring to here in verse 3 are the commands, the precepts, the principles that Christ taught. And Jesus made this very clear more than once. Just before he was arrested, he said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commands. A little later, he said in verse 21, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one 
who loves me. Now notice Jesus talks about these commands being his. His commands are the ones we find in his teachings in the New Testament scriptures. Now look at Matthew 28, verse 19. This is what it says. Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Moses has commanded you. Does it say that? No. It says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. So John says, one of the ways to know that you know Christ is that you're keeping the commands of Christ. Now remember, as we read 1 John, in the back of our minds, we always need to be mindful that John is bringing correction Excuse me, he's bringing correction for false teaching. And sometimes what he writes is not only very direct because it's intended to address a specific falsehood or a distortion. And the passage we just read together is one of these. Taken out of context, you can end up with sort of a wrong theology if you want to use that term. It would seem that John here is teaching a gospel of works. But that's not the case. He's bringing correction to another falsehood in his teaching here. So he's not teaching a different gospel at all or contradicting the fact that we're saved by grace through faith. Go back to verse 2 for a moment in chapter 2. John says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Over in Ephesians 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." Both the Apostle Paul and John clearly articulate that we are saved by grace through faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. However, John's concern is that we understand that there is a faith that is true and living and there is a faith that is false and dead. His focus here is not how we are saved, but what saving faith looks like. First of all, true faith is more than knowing the right things. The Gnostics in the early church, and we've talked about them in in previous messages, they were really proud of their knowledge and their acquisition of knowledge. They would sit around day after day seeking more knowledge, discussing and debating issues. They were pretty proud of all that they knew, and they would often use it to intimidate other believers, to really make other believers feel spiritually inferior. But they didn't live out their faith. They figured that they knew all about God, but they didn't know God personally. They had a head faith, but they did not have a living heart faith. And in verse 4, John's essentially addressing that. 
And he's saying, I'm sorry, folks, but if you claim to know Christ, but do not do what he commands, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. The Apostle James said essentially the same thing in James chapter 2. In fact, he devotes the entire chapter to this issue. So I encourage you actually to turn to James 2 because we're going to be there for just a little bit. In verse 14, James says this. What good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And the answer is obvious. True faith is more than knowing the right things. Secondly, true faith is more than feeling or experiencing the right things. Look at James 2, verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And the picture that James is painting here is a person becoming aware of a member of the church, someone who's engaged and involved in the church, who is, is experiencing some basic need. And this person's emotionally moved by that other person's need perhaps even prays for them that God will provide for their needs, but he does nothing to actually help the person. And the point being made here is that your heart can be filled with compassion for someone in need. Or you can hear a story like we just heard um, uh, on the video uh, a moment ago or saw in the video, or, or hear a sermon in, in a worship service like this and be moved emotionally to want to do something about something and yet, never do anything about it. You can be emotionally moved about the desperate need for people to lead or to invest in children or youth or, or some other ministry with adults. And leave that worship gathering saying to family and friends, you know, oh, I really hope someone in a church this size, there's got to be someone who will meet that need. I really hope someone gives to that cause. I really hope someone volunteers in that ministry. But never do anything about it yourself. Now James is not suggesting here that people of true faith will respond to every need that they become aware of or meet the need of every person that they encounter or that they will not lovingly challenge and even confront those in the church who are physically and mentally able to provide for themselves but repeatedly take advantage of other Christians and make no effort to be responsible to provide for themselves. Now what he's saying is people of true faith have a heart that always seeks to give what they can give, that always seeks to do what they can do to help in whatever way they can. It's their disposition. Their faith is more than looking for one emotional high after another. They act. They step out in faith. They get involved. They give generously. They not only say they want to help and serve and give, they actually do 
what they say they want to do. The world is full of people who want to do and give and do all kinds of things. And many don't. But those who have a true faith out of their love for God, their passionate desire to further the mission of God through His church, they follow through on what God's placed on their heart. And both James and John are saying a person can go from church to church, be moved emotionally again and again by testimonies and by the teaching of God's word if they never obey God's call to serve, to give, to help. He's saying their faith is a dead faith. Thirdly, true faith is also more than believing the right things. Some people find a false spiritual confidence in believing the right things only. They believe in God. They have all the basic Bible doctrines down pat. They will spend hours in small groups, night after night, studying, discussing Scripture and growing in their faith, thinking that right beliefs are the key to eternal life. Their theology may be bang on, but their heart attitude and their behavior hasn't changed. True faith is more than believing right doctrines. Just saying I believe in God is not, even, is, is, is not enough to get me to heaven. And the reason I say that is in verse 19, James says this, You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Have you ever thought about the fact that demons are not atheists? Yeah, I mean, they totally believe in God. They know Jesus is alive. They know the scriptures are true. And it's the truth that makes them tremble. True faith is more than believing. Now, make no mistake. I am not saying that believing is unimportant. No, what we believe about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about the Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ is extremely important because it is the truth. It's the foundation upon which we stand. It's the hope of the world. And whether we realize it or not, what we do is determined in large part by what we truly believe. However, right belief doesn't go far enough. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus essentially says here, you can profess all the right things. You can know your Bible cover to cover. Your theology can be completely biblical, but if you're not following and obeying me, if you're picking and choosing what you're going to apply to your life from the scriptures, if you have no inclination to do what I'm calling you to do, if you have no inclination to be what I'm calling you to be, then Jesus says your faith is a dead faith. True faith is more than believing the right things. And then fourthly, a true faith is more than doing the right things. Some people substitute a vital relationship with Jesus with being a good person 
and a person who lives a good life and does good deeds. They're convinced that what you believe is, is really far less important than just being a good person, doing good to others. And they believe, of course, on Judgment Day that their goodness is going to be acceptable to God. And yet in the same passage that I just read a moment ago in Matthew 7, Jesus kind of flips over the coin and shows us the other side of the truth that he just shared. And he gives this warning in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, excuse me, <coughs> did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, look at all the incredible things we did in your name. And Jesus went on to say, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, Jesus is touching on the heart of what true faith is right in that statement. True faith is fundamentally all about having an intimate friendship with Jesus. He's warning us here that all good works, even doing amazing ministries in his names like healing and deliverance won't mean anything to him if we're trusting in them to make us worthy and acceptable to a holy God rather than trusting in Jesus' atonement and a personal relationship in Jesus to make us acceptable to God. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. We are not saved by our good works, by our efforts. We are saved by grace through faith to do good works. And please, church, Let's not get the two confused. I can't come to know God by trying to keep His commandments. Only faith in what Christ has already done for me can do that and accomplish that. However, our works and our obedience to Christ demonstrates, it shows that our faith in Him is real. I mean, think for a moment about an apple tree. Not a good time of the year to do that, but think for a moment about an apple tree that's loaded with luscious red apples ready to be picked. Do these apples give life to the tree? Of course not. Those apples receive life from the tree, but they also prove that the tree is alive. And this is the point that John's making here. Yes, we receive eternal life through faith in Christ alone. But if it's a true living faith, it's going to be evident in the fruit of our lives. Our attitude, our character will begin to change. Our trust in Christ will grow and will do what he calls us to do. You know, when our children are young, they may not always understand why we ask them to do certain things and not do other things. 
We tell them to eat their vegetables, to do their homework, to not stick metal objects in electric sockets. And in their limited understanding, they wonder why we're spoiling their fun or why we are torturing them this way, you know, eat your vegetables. Of course, we insist they do these things or not do certain things, not because we want to make their life miserable, but because we have their best interests at heart and we know that one day they will understand and then they will rise up and call us blessed. You're still waiting for that, aren't you? Yeah. In the same way, however, we may not always understand the ways of God. And so we're tempted to do what we want to do rather than what God asks us to do, which, by the way, is what sin is when we decide to go our way rather than God's way. But God says, trust me in this. For example, I want you to be generous with the time and the talent and the money that I've provided for you. If you do that, I promise to meet not all of your wants, but I will meet your basic needs. I'll take care of you. But then things get really tight. And we close our hands and we hang on to what we have. You see, it's all about trust. God says, I want you to be equally yoked in marriage. I want you to marry someone who's aligned with you spiritually. But the biological clock is ticking and you begin a relationship with someone who's not on the same page as you spiritually at all. And you begin to rationalize. You begin to look for reasons why your situation is an exception. And the reality is, you see, we, aren't, we really don't trust that God has our best interests at heart. Notice in verse 5, he says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. In other words, when we choose to trust and obey the Lord, our love for God grows. And his love gradually takes over our lives. And our character increasingly begins to reflect the character of Christ his love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control begins to become more and more alive in us. Our relationship with him comes alive and, and be begins to be fun and enjoyable. You know, church, true faith is not just saying, I believe in the facts. No, true faith is giving your life over into the hands of the one that you say you believe in. True faith is not just saying, I believe my parachute will open. No, it's strapping on that chute and jumping out of the plane. True faith is about a live, active friendship with Jesus, not a sterile religion of going through rituals and going through the motions of certain rules of do, do's and don'ts. When the seed of God's loving grace takes hold of our lives, we begin to change. Our attitudes begin to change. We have a different mindset. We see life through a different set of glasses because we're now following a new king and Lord. Our life begins to reflect the character of Christ and our heart begins to break over the things that break the heart of Christ. 
Now, let me stop there and uh, ask, how's everyone doing? Pretty heavy message, isn't it? Try to preach it sometime. (laughs) I'm wondering how many of you are feeling a bit overwhelmed right now. Perhaps feeling a bit defeated, a bit fearful about whether or not you're a true follower of Christ. I'm not talking about those whose attitude is, what's the least I can do and still have eternal life? I'm not talking about those who still want to, uh, who, 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 who want just enough of God to be blessed by God, get in on all the goodies of God, and get to heaven, but not enough of God to lose control and have to be all in. I'm not talking about those who say they're Christians because they said a prayer many years ago, but have really no desire to go deeper, no desire to really grow in their faith, who go to church once in a while, but they have this mindset that says, you know, just give me a short 20-minute devotional, you know, on how to be a better person, how to be successful, you know, After that, I'm good for the week. Friend, I want to remind you that becoming a Christian involves more than just intellectual assent. Becoming a Christian involves a complete and total change of mind about who you will serve from this point forward. It's destroying all the other gods in your life that you are trusting in to give you satisfaction and security and uh, success in life and instead putting your trust in God and Him alone. It's embracing the God who is rather than the God you want. It is putting your life completely in His hands, trusting Him not only for eternal life, but living all out for Him in this life. Now it's like when a couple get married. The relationship doesn't end on the wedding day. At least I hope it doesn't. No, the relationship begins in a whole new way on the wedding day. The wedding day would be a sham if the bride and groom said all the right things but never intended to follow through on the relationship. In the same way, we cheapen all that Christ did for us when we think that eternal life is obtainable by little more than nodding our head in God's direction, believing all the right stuff, saying the right prayer, but never intending to grow deeper in our friendship with Christ. Now, if that's where you're at today, John says here more than once, You're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. And my challenge to you is, please, stop playing games with yourself. Get serious about where you stand with God. We're talking about your eternity here. All that to say I'm not talking about those who aren't serious about knowing and loving God. I'm talking about those of you who after taking in a message like this are thinking, you know, Pastor, I know John's teaching here is true. And I truly do want to live it out in my life, but I'm feeling overwhelmed right now. 
Because I know that I'm going to fall short. I know I'm going to sin from time to time, and I'm not going to keep all of his commands. There are all kinds of people who feel the way that you do, who live defeated Christian lives, because they are convinced that they can never measure up to God's standards, who never really enjoy a vibrant friendship with Jesus because they believe God likes and accepts them when they are good and punts them in the doghouse when they sin and fall short. Well, I want to encourage you by reminding you of just a summary of things I shared last time we were together. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now I need you to put your thinking caps on and follow me closely here. This verse tells us that we live in two realms, the eternal realm and the earthly realm. The eternal realm is the spiritual realm. It's the heavenly realm. It's the unseen realm. It's the realm of completeness, of wholeness, of perfection. It is the realm of our spirit, which is the core of who we are in God's eyes. It is the realm of justification, the realm in which through Christ's death and resurrection, I am set free from the penalty of sin so that I can begin a relationship with God. Now the earthly realm is the natural, earthly, visible realm, the realm where we live. It is the realm of our soul and body, the realm of growth, the realm of good and bad. It is the realm in which we still have a lot of growing to do. In the earthly realm, we should all see each other with an invisible sign that's painted on our chest that reads, under construction. It would make us more tolerant and forgiving of one another. Both realms are real, and they're important to God because He created them. Now, in Romans, Paul says, when you become a Christian and sincerely put your faith in Christ... And what he accomplished on the cross, in the eternal realm, God takes the sin that is on your account and he puts it on Christ's account. And he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it on your account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that in the eternal realm, you became, when you put your faith in Christ, you became a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. In the eternal realm, God now sees you as forgiven, as righteous, and perfect. Not because you live perfectly in the, in the earthly realm, but because in the eternal realm, you are in Christ and he is in you. 
and he is righteous and perfect. That is your new identity in Christ. Now, in the earthly realm, you and me, we're still growing in the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 14 speaks to both of those realms. It reads like this. Because by one sacrifice, referring, of course, to Christ's sacrifice on the cross, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, let's pull that apart a little bit. What's being said there? It says, God has made perfect forever. Who? That is referring to our identity in Christ in the eternal realm. We have been made perfect forever. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's referring to us in the earthly realm. The realm where we are being made holy. The realm of growth. The realm of becoming like Christ. Now I point that all out to you to encourage you. Because even though our position in Christ is secure in the eternal realm, here in the earthly realm, there will be times where we drop the ball, where we sin, where we struggle. We will not always live as Jesus did, the way that John talks about here in verse 6. Because we fall in sin, at times does not mean we are not followers of Christ or that our position in Christ in the eternal realm is suddenly terminated and God tosses us out of his family. For as you've heard me say probably too many times already, it is not the perfection of your life in the on the earthly realm but it's the direction of your heart and life that really reveals whether you're a believer or not. John says here in verse 5 and 6, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We can never live the Christian life in the earthly realm. We can never live it perfectly the way that Jesus did. But if the direction, the desire of our heart is to know and love God, if it is to hate sin, to die to sin, to live in humility and to love selflessly and sacrificially and to follow the Lord obediently, we can know that we are in right relationship with God even when we fall short. Now, knowing this and believing this will change everything in terms of how you live out your Christian faith. You embrace Paul's words in Romans 8, which says there is now no condemnation for those who are, what? In Christ Jesus. God does not reject you when you sin because remember in the eternal realm you are already righteous and acceptable because you are in Christ 
God's wrath and judgment is no longer directed at you because Jesus took all of God's wrath that was directed at us. He took it upon himself on the cross. Thank you, Lord. You now come to Jesus with a new sense of openness and freedom because you no longer see him as your judge. You no longer see him as someone who sees you as the object of his wrath. No, now you see him as your father and as your friend who loves and accepts you unconditionally. Now you serve him and you follow him, not out of a fear of condemnation, No, you serve him out of love and desire to serve him and to honor him and to forward his kingdom. You now come to Jesus with the assurance that nothing will come your way that he isn't aware of and that he doesn't allow. Even when hardships come your way, you are absolutely convinced that his motive is love, that he always has your best interests at heart and is therefore either disciplining you to bring correction or he's pruning you for greater effectiveness in his kingdom. But it is not to punish you. You see, knowing who you are in Christ and embracing it in your life daily changes everything. I'll close with this. The Apostle John, he closes this little section of Scripture that we read together, saying, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That seems totally overwhelming, doesn't it? And yet, how did Jesus live when he lived in the earthly realm? Jesus lived in total dependence on his heavenly Father, and friends, if, if, if we want to experience life to the full and become all that God created us to be, then the key is to follow Christ's example and to live daily in humble dependence on Him. You know, every summer, Gwen and I spend time in the pool at Fairmont with our children and grandchildren. And when our grandchildren were really young, they were really hesitant to join us in the pool. And I would say, you know, come on in, you know, it's awesome in here. You know, jump to me. Jump on me. Jump in. You're going to love this. And it typically takes several days until they finally trust me, are convinced that I'm not going to let them drown, and they jump in. And as time goes on, they grow more and more bold and free and comfortable and then we can't convince them to get out of the pool (laughs) and friends we need to understand that this is the heart of our Lord Jesus he's inviting you and me into the richest most full life imaginable he's not trying to kill your joy he's not trying to steal anything truly good from you When God says, do this, when he says, don't do that, he's not saying, you better do it if you want me to be happy with you, if you want me to accept you, if you want to get to heaven when you die. 
No, he's saying true fulfillment, true satisfaction. All that you were created for is found in being in relationship with me. It is found in trusting me and following me. So trust me and jump in. Trust me with your life. Let go and surrender control of your life to me. He's saying, let's grow as friends because through me, you're going to experience all that I have for you. You know, friends, you can trust Jesus. You really can. You will never find a better or a closer friend or a, or a more secure object for your faith. He is our fortress that cannot be shaken. He is a rock that cannot be moved. He's totally trustworthy. He's our Savior and Lord. And I'm just blown away. Why? But He wants to be our friend. Would you please stand with me for closing prayer? Let's open our hands to Him and just take a moment to ask Him, Lord, what are you saying to me? And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And I just pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we will be open. We'll receive what you have for us, Lord, that your truth would penetrate deep within us. That we would know that we are yours. And Lord, that we would carry on. We would move forward with the confidence that we are your son and daughter. We would live, Lord, in the recognition of that and we would experience the joy, the peace that comes from that. For I pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. 
We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.